So in the first place, I would like to thank um, Father Conrad for um, <clears throat> giving, me, giving me the chance to speak to you here in Blackfriars. Um, I'll try to stick myself to 40 minutes. If I speak 41 minutes, just um, let me know. Throw me bottles or, or things, books, whatever. <clears throat> okay. Vain is the word of a philosopher which does not heal any suffering of man. For just as there is no profit in medicine if it does not expel the disease of the body, so there is no profit in philosophy either if it does not expel the suffering of the mind. This sentence attributed to Epicurus could be considered the very program of most, if not all, philosophical schools in antiquity. In fact, sophisticated discussions on logic, metaphysics, and ethics among the ancient schools of philosophy were anchored in the following diagnosis. Human beings want to lead a fulfilled and happy life, but they suffer, we suffer, from an illness that prevents them from attaining this goal. Philosophy is there to answer the question of what is true happiness, what is eudaimonia, and to provide the tools to attain it. To put it in medical terms, philosophy has the therapeutic task of diagnosing, proposing a cure, and healing the patient. For many ancient philosophers, the identification of this illness of the soul with turbulent emotion was close at hand, since the word for emotion, pathos, can mean illness and suffering too. And, and you know that, for instance, uh, Cicero translated this word with sometimes morbus, sometimes uh, aerotatio, all in the domain of, the, of medicine. Of course, not every philosophical school in antiquity considered the emotions or passions, I will use them as synonyms, as the very illness of soul. Not every school agreed, for example, with Epicurus, who affirmed that happiness consists in expelling the emotions of the mind and attaining ataraxia. This is complete tranquility of mind. But all, I think, all schools of antiquity would have agreed that, first, happiness is what philosophy strives for, two, the emotions, the pathe, play an important role in human happiness or misery, and three, that philosophy should have a therapeutic effect over the emotions. In fact, since the eudaimonia, or happiness, for which philosophy strives is human eudaimonia, philosophy must consider what is to be human. Here is where the passions or emotions come in. After all, we human beings are emotional beings. That is to say, we experience emotions, we are driven by them, for good or for bad, and we consider them ingredients of what we mean to be happy or disgraced. Whereas the Stoics and Epicureans seem to have held the opinion 
that the healing of the passions consisted in getting rid of them altogether in order to attain perfect happiness, the Platonist and Aristotelian philosophers were more nuanced or more realist, if you like, in their judgment about the emotions and attributed them a positive role in their account of happiness. However, it is symptomatic of the consensus of the ancient schools regarding the therapeutic role of philosophy that the Epicurean passage quoted above has been transmitted to us thanks to the Neoplatonist Porphyrius, Porphyry, who quoted it extensively in his consolatory work dedicated to his wife, Marcella. So, Epicurus and the Neoplatonist were um, agreed in this subject, that, that, that philosophy should have a therapeutic effect on emotions. But let's get back to the point. If philosophy has a therapeutic function, then it means that in some way we are all ill. Whatever this illness may be, is what stops us from being happy. From, for many ancient philosophers, the identification of this illness of the soul with turbulent emotion was close at hand. Not only because the word for emotion, pathos, as I told you before, can refer to the semantic feel of illness or disgrace, but because these philosophers correctly realized that vices are intimately connected to emotions, and vice produces unhappiness. We commit reproachable actions, either driven by violent emotions or in order to flee repulsing emotions, as Cicero says in his fourth book of Tusculan Disputations. Now, one emotion seems to be particularly at odds with happiness, sadness or sorrow. among medieval philosophers, Aquinas, for instance. So, sadness or sorrow. If someone, say a friend of ours, tells us that he considers himself a happy or fulfilled person, and at the same time tells this with a grimace of grief and melancholy, we would rightly believe that something is going wrong. Maybe the person isn't happy at all, or maybe we haven't understood the real meaning of the word happiness. Is sadness or sorrow, after all, compatible with a flourishing life? If so, how? However it may be, we all agree, I think, that sadness can be sometimes a token of the absence of happiness in our lives. In this seminar, I will address the question of sadness with regards to a theory of providence. To this end, I will divide my exposition in three parts. First, in the first part, I will try to explain how sadness is, as a passion, related to the question of providence. In the second part, I will explain the consolatory aspect of Augustine's and Boetius' approach to the subject of providence. And third, I will try to answer the question 
as to whether Aquinas' theory of providence includes a consolatory approach or therapeutic approach, and if so, what this consolatio tomistica looks like. In all these three parts, I will, of course, make use of Augustine, Boetius, and Aquinas, and other thinkers. But it doesn't mean that my scope in this seminary is merely to prove some historical points. Quite on the contrary, I consider these authors part of a tradition whose richness provides us with an outstanding framework to approach any contemporary philosophical or theological question. So if, if I refer to, to Cicero and Augustine and I um, write some Latin or Greek terms, doesn't mean that I'm trying to do some um, point in the history of philosophy. I know that, that in, in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, um, there's a tendency to separate systematic from historical. Well, I, I try to unite them. <laughs> so, let's start with sadness and providence. Known as lipe to the Greek philosophers and called agritudo or tristitia by Latin philosophers, the emotion of sorrow caught, caught the attention of Cicero, who considered it to be the main illness of the soul and the greatest enemy of human happiness. I quote, Sadness is to be avoided as an abominable and wild monster, writes Cicero in his Tuscula Disputation, the third book of which is devoted to the subject. What is this monster made of? According to the Stoic ontology and taxonomy of emotions, there are four main perturbaciones, perturbations of the soul or emotions. Desire, delight, fear and sadness. These four emotions can be deducted from two variables, time present, time future, on one hand, good and evil, on the other hand. Accordingly, desire is the movement of the soul originating in the intellectual apprehension of a future good, whereas delight is the movement of the soul before a present good. Fear, metus, timor, in the Latin tradition, is the movement of the soul escaping a future evil, and sorrow or sadness is the movement of the soul in the face of a present evil. To quote the exact definition of Cicero, so, distress, sorrow, then is a newly formed belief of present evil, the subject of which thinks it is right to feel depression and shrinking of the soul. Opinio recens mali presentis in quodemiti contraitque animo rectum esse videatur. This definition can be the object of sound criticism, but I prefer here to point out what I think is interesting. I think that this definition of sadness put, puts a correct emphasis on the cognitive aspect of emotions. Sadness is not just pain. To feel pain 
we need some sort of self-awareness. But to feel sorrow or sadness, we need to make evaluations using our intellect and imagination about the fitness of feeling depression and shrinking of the soul about evil. This is why Aquinas say, says that, properly speaking, sadness is caused by an internal apprehension. Apprehensio interi. As a matter of fact, the reality of evil, both physical and moral, is the proper trigger of feeling of sorrow or desolation. As I said before, since sadness is a reflexive emotion encompassing both imagination and intellect, it is not necessary to suffer evil in the first person to be deeply affected by its existence. Um, for example, I can read Dostoyevsky's Brothers Karamazov and, and feel deep sorrow. I, I can watch a presidential election in another country and feel deep sorrow. So if we consider the beginning of Boetius' consolation of philosophy, we see that the author, it is Boetius, is overthrown by sadness and we can feel with him. This is to say we can feel compassion for him. And compassion, as the Stoic knew, is a species of sadness. The question posed by Boetius is perhaps the, perhaps the most difficult challenge to explain the existence of providence. If there is an omnipotent and good God ruling the universe, including human affairs, then whence comes evil? In the beginning of Book 4 of his De Consolatione, Boetius cries, the very greatest cause of my grief is that although there does exist a good ruler of the universe, evil can exist at all and even pass unpunished. Lady philosophy herself acknowledges that the question of providence is the greatest of all philosophical questions. Maxima omnium quaesitu. Augustine, writing a century or so earlier, addresses the same questions many times and calls it a deep sea. It's mare profundum. Calls it a questio dura et difficilis. Hard um, and difficult question. Augustine is aware that the question of providence emerges with all its depth there where there is actual suffering and distress. Let's think, for instance, of the first book of the City of God, where Augustine addresses people who are fleeing from Rome, where the barbarians have killed and tortured the innocent, raped women, and destroy the properties of many. Why is the existence of evil such an enormous challenge to the affirmation of divine providence? Aquinas 
formulates two objections against the existence of divine providence in the first part of his Summa Theologiae. The formulations are as synthetic and incisive as the sharpest atheist could ever articulate. In the first part, question 3, Aquinas says, I quote, It seems that God does not exist, because if one of two contraries be in infinite, the other would be altogether destroyed. But the word God means that he is infinite goodness. If, therefore, God existed, there would be no evil. But there is evil in the world, therefore, God doesn't exist. In question 22, in the, in the um, Prima Pars, similar objection is made, resembling that of Epicurus. I quote, Further, a wise provider excludes any defect or evil as far as he can from those over whom he has a care. But we see many evils existing. Either then God cannot hinder this, and thus he is not omnipotent, or else he does not have care for everything. So there is no providence. However, this highly intellectual and non-rhetorical formulation of the objection from the existence of evil should not drive us to think that for Aquinas, evil is merely a highly sophisticated intellectual puzzle, like as, for example, the existence of prime matter or the ontological status of numbers. Quite on the contrary, the existence of evil poses a more difficult task, I think, for it does not only challenge our mind with hard objections, but also the mind itself is blinded and disturbed by the strong emotion of sorrow, as Boetius depicts himself in the first book of his Consolation. <coughs> Something similar, I think, happens in ethics. Sound argumentation about doing the right thing, for instance, about the convenience of temperance, only does half of the job. The affections must be well directed in order that these sound arguments be fully understood and incorporated by the moral agent. Accordingly, in order to answer the challenge of evil, a philosopher should not only address the intellect, but also take care of the main emotion that blocks the acceptance of providence, sadness or sorrow. In other words, he must start a therapy. <clears throat> now I'm turning to, to the second part. I'll try to explain briefly what, what is a philosophical therapy according to the examples of um, Augustine and Boetius. In, or, in order to answer the question as to whether we can trace a therapeutic, therapeutic or consolatory approach in Aquinas, and if so, what this consolatio domestica looks like, we must go back to Aquinas' greatest authorities in this matter, Augustine and Boetius. Both Augustine and Boetius were great theorists of providence, and both approached the motion of sorrow within the framework of a theodicy. 
justification of of the goodness. Of course, it's a modern term, but we can apply them to to ancient philosophy. I think so. I'll start with Augustine. The problem of evil, which is a fundamental question of any theory of providence, was perhaps the most enduring challenge of Augustine's life. In considering providence, Augustine takes his customary polemical approach. He engaged with Cicero's Daniel of divine prescience, and he also argues against the Epicureans, who deny that God cares about human affairs. The Epicureans hold that the universe behaves according to chance and that there is no order. There's no key word once the One of the first um, works of Augustine is about order. It's about, it's about facing the objections of, of Epicureans. <clears throat> so, <coughs> Epicureans hold that there is no order in universe because the, the innocent suffer and the weak go unpunished. <coughs> this last claim does not belong exclusively to any philosophical school, but rather constitutes, so to say, an anthropological question. Even recognizing the existence of harmony in the natural order, <clears throat> the question concerning human affairs still calls for attention. A quote, how is it possible that God cares about human affairs and yet perversity spreads? Augustine asked himself in this early work in De Ordine. Is it possible that providence exists, but only bothers itself with the big picture while neglecting the res humanae, human affairs, as too trifling, as some Stoics said? This question recurs throughout his work, either as a philosophical challenge posed by a philosopher or as a bitter complaint lodged by believers. If God is good, why does he allow the God to suffer? Is not the prosperity of the weak a token of God's failure to exert his providentia over us? Augustine makes two principal responses to this objection. At times, he resorts to cosmological arguments to show that the order, the functioning and the harmony of the physical universe point to a governing intelligence. At others, he has recourse to argument of a different type, which I call ascetic consolatory arguments that explain the meaning of suffering in God's providential plan. Although the division between these two types of argument is not absolute, we can find a certain relationship between the type of argument and the audience addressed. In Augustine's early work, for instance, the Ordine, the immediate audience is those who, being retired from worldly affairs, enjoy the otium liberale. They, they enjoy free time. 
to think, to philosophy. On the other hand, in, late, in later works, the direct addressees are laymen distressed by the calamities of life. And this later is the case of the City of God, at least the first book of the City of God. In fact, the historical context after the sack of Rome by the barbarians in 410 is quite different from that of, of, of the Ordine, which is year 386, so-called Dialogues of Casiciacum. Augustine's new circumstances compelled him to provide new answers, since his position was no longer the same. Instead of enjoining the otium liberale in his state at Casiciacum, Augustine was now a traveling bishop taking care of a Christian community in Hippo, Diarritus, Hippo Regius, and Carthage, home in exile of the first refugees flying from home, Rome. These refugees, mostly, but not all, Christians, carried with themselves the painful memories of the destruction of Rome and also the trauma of having lost relatives and friends as well as enduring famine, torture, rape, and the loss of material goods. Augustine himself was not left unaffected, since he too had lost friends in the city. Despite what may appear prima facie, the first book of the Civitate Dei is not only directed towards the pagan survivors of the tragedies, who blaspheme against Christ or the Tempora Christiana. The book also aims to console those Christians devastated by the catastrophe and those people shocked by these horrible tidings, this horrenda nuntiata. Augustine explicitly points out this consolatory function in addressing women who were raped during the sack. Quote, but we are here not so much concerned to return an answer to outsiders as to bring comfort, this is consolationem, to our people. We could argue, therefore, that the Civitate Dei at least first book, and maybe the second, is a apologetic consolatory piece. So Augustine never wrote a consolatio, but we, we, we can say that the first book of the Kivita de Dei is, is really um, his consolatio. Hmm? The, the point I'm trying to make is the following. The identity of the audience is not indifferent to the structure of the argument. It would be absurd for Augustine to attempt to convince these people, recent sufferers of great misfortune, of the good government of providence using cosmological or metaphysical arguments. Although cosmological or metaphysical arguments are neither false, of course not, nor incoherent with consolatory discourse, this kind of arguments do not address the problem of evil faced by someone currently affected by sorrow, but rather presuppose that the person has already attained some apatheia. That is, that he or she is free of sorrow. 
On the contrary, sorrow causes, says Boetius, a lethargic condition of the mind. And Aquinas says, sorrow absorbs the soul in such a way that it causes the perturbation of reason. It's perturbatio rationis. Could a perturbated reason even consider principles such as those handled down by Aquinas, for, for instance, in the question 22 of the Prima Pars, where Aquinas explains evil in the world as, as a matter of, of, of uh, corruption and um, generation? It seems unlikely to me, but not only to me, but to philosophy herself. In fact, when philosophia, lady philosophy, encounters the impressionate Boetius, she at once notes that the sadness has reduced Boetius to muteness and dumbness. Like an experienced doctor, she mutters to herself, I quote, There is no danger. He is in a lethargy, the common disease of deceived minds. Lethargum patitur commune illusarum mentium morbum. So again, the the medical uh, vocabulary of, of morbus here, referring to pathos. Lady philosophy does not offer Boetius a metaphysical argument about the ontological nature of evil, and about the existence of God through the degrees of perfection. That will come later. That happens in the fourth book or, or fifth book when his reason allow him to grasp abstract notions, but rather offers less lofty reasons, such as the demonstration, if you want to use this term, that this grace is never complete. It's a very humble philosophical thesis. This grace is never complete. You, you always have something to feel good about. According to a principle familiar to ancient medicine, healing drugs must be applied gradually, as the patient in lethargic condition cannot take too much medication all at once. This principle had been long applied by moralists to the therapy of the soul, for instance, in Seneca. In, in all his Consolationes, we see that Seneca applies this, this principle of, of giving small amounts of medicine. For instance, Boetius still has a family. His wife and children are alive, and so his beloved father-in-law, Symmachus. So the, that's, that's an argument. This conversation with Lady Philosophy gives Boetius a small consolation about the present. Presentis solamen, and some, quote, hope for the future, future spem, however little. This small progress is celebrated by Lady Philosophy, who cries, Hurrah, we move forward, promovimus aliquantum. Before this small step, Philosophy proposed the demonstration of a humble thesis, again, happiness in this life is never complete. 
Again, the demonstration of this thesis does not require philosophical training at all, but rather the simple recognition of the fact that most people we consider happy or fulfilled actually lack something or suffer, suffer some sort of disgrace. And we can say uh, the same thing with countries, for instance. Huh? Great countries with horrible presidents. Um, very rich country, but very boring. I won't tell um, concrete examples in Europe, but you know what I mean. <coughs> After that, Lady Philosophy proceeds to show that fortune, fortuna, is essentially inconstant and so on. One may be tempted to skip the first pages of the second book of Consolation in order to get the main dish right away, that is, wishes metaphysical arguments. But in truth, these rather simple and straightforward arguments show a deep philosophical insight into human nature. We humans are, as John Henry Newman said, not reasoning animals, but seeing, feeling, contemplating, acting animals. So if we want to appeal to the intellect or reason, we have to conquer it not directly, but through an education of the sense, the emotions and the imaginations. Once these steps are made, it is time to think of stronger treatments, as Lady Philosophy says. Good, so now um, I'll go to the third part of this seminar. Um, does Aquinas belong to the tradition that I, that I have outlined? Does he treat the subject of providence and the objection from evil from the point of view of the suffering mind, suffering man, sorry, namely in a gradual therapeutic way? We know that Aquinas did not write protraptic or consolatory works in the fashion of Roman philosophers that served as models for Augustine or Boetius. One must recognize, additionally, that the analytic and sober style displayed in most of his famous work lacks the vivacity and the appeal to the imagination that characterize Boetius or Augustine. Furthermore, if we turn to the Summa Theologiae or the Summa Contragentes, the subject of providence appears in a highly speculative context without reference to the emotional disposition necessary for a disappassionate reflection on the subject. Aquinas, of course, acknowledged that sorrow is a matter of utmost importance in the origin of the problem of evil. However, are we to think that Aquinas agrees, for example, with Van Ingwagen, who in his book on providence, albeit acknowledging that the problem of evil arises from sorrow, tells us that, quote, that's what Peter Van Ingwagen says, it is not advisable to try to say anything to bring consolation or hope. 
The reason of this, says Van Inwagen, is that if one tries to do that, he probably will neither give the argument from evil its intellectual due, nor say anything that would be of any use to the grieving person. I wonder what could have said Boetius or Augustine about, about uh, Professor Van Inwagen's um, advice. So, could, could we say that Aquinas would agree with uh, Peter van Inwagen? The answer to these questions is not univocal. From the point of view of the literary genre, Aquinas Summae seem to follow the type of project that animates contemporary philosophers, such as van Inwagen, Plantinga, or Swinburne, who try to defend rationally Christian theism from the objection of evil without dwelling on the subject of emotions. But, here comes the ser contra. To reduce Thomas to the Summa eh, would be unfair. Thomas Aquinas, who was above all a magister in Sacra Pagina, did not write a consolatory treatise on providence for another reason, I think. He thought that that work was already written. It is the Book of Job. According to Aquinas, the Book of Job is the treatise on divine providence in the Bible. So we don't need a consolatio. We have that in the Bible, inspired by God himself. The prologue to Aquinas' commentary on the Book of Job is extremely illustrative regarding the special status of this work. According to Aquinas, the Book of Job does not intend to prove the existence of providence in the physical world, but rather, quote, to show that human affairs are ruled by divine providence using probable arguments, rationes probabiles, in order to remove a pernicious opinion from the hearts of men. Aquinas says that what has most shaken the hearts of men, quod maxime corda hominum commovit, is not the fact that evildoers thrive, but that the just are inflicted without cause. Thus, says Aquinas, the varied and grave afflictions of a specific just man called Job, perfect in every virtue, are proposed as a kind of theme, tema, for the question intended for discussion. We can, we can pick three notable things from this short text. First, Aquinas uses the language of emotions. He speaks of commotio, of cor, corda, when referring to the problem of providence, building thus the prologue of a more extensive treatment of sadness when commenting on Job's reaction upon learning of the death of his beloved son and daughter. So if we turn to, to, to the commentary, we will see that Aquinas deals with, the, with passions and above all with tristitia. Second, Aquinas emphasized that the book of Job strives not for apodictic arguments, but for probable arguments, rationes probabiles. 
Probable arguments are those arguments, I quote, born to produce opinion or belief, not science, as Aquinas notes in his commentary on Boetius, the Trinitate. Nate sum facere opinionem bel fidem non scientiam. These arguments are the material of dialectic discourse as opposed to scientific discourse. This is just the kind of argument from which consolatory discourses are made, for they use things that have regularly common practice as principles. Third, the Book of Job is centered on a person, that is to say it proposes an exemplum, an example to follow. The giving of examples is a common procedure in consolatory literature. Seneca's De Providentia, for instance, a consolatory protreptic treatise on providence, proposes Cato of Utica as a model of virtue. Augustine, so now we turn to Augustine, Augustine, who probably had in mind Seneca's De Providentia when he wrote the Civitate Dei, book one, which we, we, may call, may call the Consolatione of Augustine, considers that Cato is a counter-model. Counter -model. Let us remember that Cato, a political leader famous in Rome for his moral integrity, unwilling to yield to Caesar, ended up in suicide. Augustine contrasts Cato's sublime, sublime suicide to the humble example of Job, who submitted himself to providence, suffering all the evils permitted by God, while never giving up hope in his just government. Unsurprisingly, Aquinas think that Boetius himself stands amongst those wise men who have followed Job's example. Job, just like Boetius, articulates a philosophical discourse that starts from the emotions and leads to reason. But unlike Boetius, Job not only reached reason, but goes further into revelation. So if we may divide the, the book of Job in three, Aquinas says that in the beginning, it's Job's emotions that speak. Then it's Job, Job's reason, and then it's Job's reason illuminated by Revelation. Perhaps we could say that Job's consolation is not only a consolatio philosophiae, but also a consolatio fidei. To sum up, the presence of these three elements in Aquinas' commentary on Job suggests that Aquinas was not far from the literary genre of consolation and that he considered the emotions or passions not only a part of philosophical anthropology or an integral moral theory, but a necessary ingredient to a complete account of providence. And we could say even more, Aquinas, unlike the Stoics, was more aware of the close connection between emotions and the body. Sorrow, sadness, as a violent movement of contraction of the appetite to flee from evil, produces 
weariness. Delight, on the contrary, is not an exhausting but a calming emotion. And since sorrow can be eliminated by its opposite, we should seek delights in order to mitigate sorrow. Now, since, since bodily indulgence costs inner delight too, a good starting point to battle sadness, says Aquinas, is to take hot baths and to sleep. Perhaps the next book on providence and evil should start with a prologue about taking baths and a small dissertation on the art of the siesta. Thank you very much.